0: Good morning. I'm David, one of the pastors here at Remedy, for those that don't know me. Uh, Our text this morning is John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. We're already in the seventh chapter in our study together of the Gospel of John. And it's my great joy to open God's Word with you this morning. So if you're able, please stand to honor the reading of God's Word John CHAPTER seven verses one through fifteen. After this Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast, the Jews' feast of Booths, was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated, and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your holy, eternal word. we pray that your Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. Father, we pray that we will know the truth. And we thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. So anyone who has been around children knows that they like to ask a lot of questions. Some of their questions can actually be quite thought-provoking. Like the child that asked, why can't I see my eyes? Or the five-year-old boy that, that said, mom, my belly hurts. Am I pregnant? Or the girl who was watching her mother bake cookies in the oven and asked, are the cookies loading? But children asking questions is a good thing, because asking and answering questions is a great way to learn. Some of you are using catechisms to help teach your children biblical doctrine. These are built around a series of questions and answers. Socrates, the Greek philosopher, developed an entire educational method around questions and answers. Today, we call this method Socratic questioning. It's a form of disciplined questioning that can be used to explore complex ideas. It helps get to the truth of things. So it should come as no surprise to us that in chapter 7, the Apostle John begins with a series of questions and answers that tell us more about Jesus. This is a different approach than uh, he's had in the first six chapters of John. So far, we've seen John make the case for Jesus' identity by calling various witnesses. First, we have the witness of the apostle John himself, then John the Baptist, then some of the disciples. Next, we have various signs or attesting miracles. John also records several discourses in which Jesus explains to the people who he is. We just wrapped up chapter 6, which included the Bread of Life discourse. But in chapter 7, we see something new. In the ESV, there are 17 questions that Jesus asks or are asked about him. The first of these questions is in our text today. In verse 11, the people ask, where is he? Where is Jesus? The answers provide insight into who Jesus is and how he may be found. Where is Jesus? In verses 1 and 2, we see that he tabernacles among us. In verses 3 to 10, that he follows God's timing. And in verses 11 to 13, that he is found by those who believe he is all he says he is. Where is Jesus? The first answer is, he tabernacles among us. Verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So verse 1 starts out after this. D.A. Carson attributes his father with the saying, any text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. So let's talk about the context and how this fits in with the larger narrative that we're seeing here. After this, after what? Well, in chapter six, we saw that many of his disciples withdrew and did not walk with him anymore. The crowd was interested in a political messiah who would give them physical bread, but Jesus himself Is the bread of life. Jesus delivers the bread of life discourse in the synagogue in Capernaum, which is on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 7, we find Jesus is still in Galilee. There's a gap of about six months between chapters 6 and 7. John's purpose in writing the gospel was not to write an exhaustive biography. Rather, His purpose is to write so that we can know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we can have life in his name. What has Jesus been doing during these six months? Well, he's been investing in his disciples. These are the men who will carry on his work after he ascends to his Father, so he disciples them. They, in turn, will disciple others who will disciple others down to our day. That's called the mission of the church. That's our mission. In all, Jesus spent about a year in Galilee. The Synoptic Gospels, which are believed to have been written before the book of John, uh, focus much of their attention on this period of Jesus' ministry. Our text says simply, Jesus went about in Galilee. The reason for the geographical restriction was that the Jewish authorities in Judea are trying to kill him. Galilee and Judea were under different jurisdictions. Herod Antipas had responsibility for Galilee, while Pontius Pilate was the prefect or the governor of Judea. Verse 2. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. As we've seen in the book of John, much of the narrative is tied to Old Testament feasts of the Jews. All of these feasts prophetically foreshadow Christ. They point to him. John references three different Passovers in seven different chapters, in chapters 2, 6, 11, 12, 13, 18, and 19. Even chapter 5 gives us the setting of a feast, even though it's not named. Our text today mentions the Feast of Booths, which takes place in the fall of the year. Both chapters 7 and 8 take place during this Feast of Booths. The next feast mentioned is the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, in John 10, and that takes place in the winter. This is followed by Jesus' final Passover, beginning in John 13:1, which continues for a number of chapters. As we come to chapter 7 today, we are entering into the final six months of Jesus' public ministry, and it says, the Feast of Booths is at hand. The Feast of Booths was a week long, plus an eighth-day grand finale. The eighth day was celebrated with a holy convocation, or a a formal assembly. The first and last days were declared Sabbaths. Leviticus 23.36 says, "'For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord.'" On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. The Feast of Booths began on the 15th day of the seventh month of the Jewish lunar calendar. So in our calendar, that falls in September or October. According to Leviticus 23, it was to take place, quote, when you have gathered the produce of the land. So it was a feast that came right after the harvest in an agrarian society. According to the first century historian Josephus, the Feast of Booths was the most popular of all Jewish feasts. It was marked by celebrations and parties and featured lamplighting and water-drawing rituals full of symbolism. Later, we'll see in chapter 7 how Jesus teaches in the temple during the Feast of Booths, and he, he picks up on this symbolism. He will show us yet again that he is the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. The Feast of Booths was well attended for two reasons. First, it was one of three pilgrimage festivals. In other words, It was one of three Jewish feasts in which males were required to attend in Jerusalem. The other two pilgrimage festivals are the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Unleavened Bread takes place the day after Passover and lasts for seven days. The Feast of Weeks is also known as Pentecost. The second reason the Feast of Booths was well-attended is because it was fun. It was characterized by joy. When instructions are given regarding the Feast of Booths, in Leviticus 23, it says, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. The Feast of Booths went by different names. It was sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, or simply the Feast or shortened to booths. It was also commonly called the season of our joy. During the Feast of Booths, the Jews would take branches and build simple booths to live in. The walls were thin, so it let light in, and at night you could see the stars through the roof. The purpose of the festival was to remind the Jews of how they wandered in the wilderness and how God provided for them but more than remembering an historical event, it was remembering that God tabernacled with them. Shekinah glory is a visible manifestation of God on earth. His Shekinah glory was displayed as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God dwelt with his people. That is why the Jews called the Feast of Booths the season of our joy. That is why joy is associated with this holiday more than any other Jewish festival. God tabernacled with them. John helps us understand that the Feast of Booths points us to Jesus. It celebrates God dwelling with his people. John uses the same language in the prologue. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt, Literally, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The eternal word, Jesus, dwelt among us. Those who believe in him can see his glory. We can see his grace and truth. Let's talk about application. Today, Jesus dwells. He tabernacles In us, his church. He shed his own blood to create the church. The church is God's primary conduit of his grace and glory to the world. Meaningful local church involvement is not an optional spiritual discipline. It's the essential context in which believers are intended to find Christ and to grow in him. To love Christ means to love his church and to build it by word and deed. Where is Jesus? He tabernacles among us. Second, he follows God's timing. The theme of God's timetable is seen throughout Scripture. The birth of Christ was on God's timetable. Galatians 4.4 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. Christ's death on the cross was on God's timetable. Romans 5.6 reads, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ's return will be on God's timetable. First Timothy 6.15 says that the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ will be at the the proper time. Jesus follows God's timetable. Let's continue, verses 3 and 4. So his brothers said to them, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. The brothers here are his half-brothers, born of his mother Mary. Humanly speaking, their advice makes sense. No doubt they're aware of the large-scale defections of Jesus' disciples. The Feast of Booths is a popular attraction. He could perform miracles there in front of huge crowds. Plus, what better place to do miracles than the temple in Jerusalem? It's the center of Jewish religious life. For us, the readers of the book of John, though, there's a certain irony here. The brothers press Jesus to show himself to the world, yet it is precisely the world that does not receive him. John 1.10 says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. His brothers can't see all of this because they're still of the world. They're not yet part of the kingdom. Eventually, it will be in Jerusalem that Jesus shows himself most dramatically, not in the spectacular miracles that the brothers want to see, but in the cross. The other irony is that the brothers are offering the creator of the universe their wisdom. They're giving the eternal word their advice. We do that sometimes. We want God to answer our prayers, but not only answer them, but answer them the way we want. We want him to do what we want when we want it. Sometimes God's timetable is not our timetable because Jesus's purpose is not our purpose. So we get frustrated with God. We have everything planned. Everything' ready, and He fails to do our bidding. Sometimes, it's just because God's greater than we realize. Is it possible that the God who created the universe has wisdom that is beyond us? Romans 11:34 to36 expresses it well. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The brother's advice would have made perfect sense if Jesus was a political Messiah. If his goal was nothing more than the overthrow of the yoke of Rome. But there was... That was really insignificant compared with his real mission. His brothers misunderstood his ministry. Verse 5 tells us why. For not even his brothers believed in him. At this point, his brothers did not have saving faith. Their faith was like the superficial disciples who followed Jesus for his miracles. They didn't. Understand his identity. It wasn't until after the resurrection that his brothers believed. Acts 1:14. All these is talking here about Jesus' disciples after the ascension, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. One of Jesus' brothers, James, would go on to become the leader of the Church of Jerusalem and the author of the New Testament book of James. Another brother, Jude, wrote the book that bears his name. But this is all after the cross. Verses 6 to 8. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. The Gospel of John is an ever progressing journey to the cross. Seven of its 21 chapters focus on the time between the Last Supper and the resurrection. Jesus was moving toward the cross, but he was doing so on God's timetable. He was not unwilling to die. That's why he came into the world. The crucifixion was part of God's eternal plan. We get a first glimpse of this plan after the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was the foretold offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. The serpent, the God of this world, hates Jesus. The world doesn't hate the brothers because they're of the world. But Jesus testifies against the world, and the world hates to have its evil exposed. An encounter with Jesus exposes our sin. He turns the lights on, and we can't hide our sin. When our sin is held up to his perfect righteousness, we begin to understand why it's such an outrage to God, why the fall of mankind was caused by a single sin. Verses 9 and 10. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he also went up, not publicly, but in private." A surface reading of this leaves us thinking, wait a minute, Jesus just told his brothers he wasn't going to the feast, and then he goes, what's going on? If you're following in the ESV, you'll see a footnote in verse 8 which reads, some manuscripts add yet. Most Bible commentators agree that yet was not in the original it's unlikely that a scribe would introduce a contradiction into the text. On the other hand, there's an obvious reason for later scribes to add the yet, since doing so removes the apparent contradiction with verse 10. If you have a KJV or a New King James Version, you'll find the not going to the text translated not yet going to the, fe- the, te- the feast. Um, but the ESV, like most modern translations, correctly translate it as simply saying, not going to the feast. However, with or without the yet, the Lord's meaning is clear. Jesus is not saying that he would not attend the feast at all, but that he would not go with his brothers in the manner that they expected, which was with his family publicly. D.A. Carson says, Jesus' response to his brothers is not that he is planning to stay in Galilee forever, but that because his life is regulated by his heavenly father's appointments, he is not going to the feast when they say he should. His no turns down his brother's request. It's not a promise that he will not go to the feast when the father sanctions the trip. Next week, we'll see in verse 14 that Jesus did not arrive in Jerusalem until the middle of the feast. By the time he left Galilee, the roads would have been relatively deserted. This allows him to enter Jerusalem without drawing the attention of the Jewish authorities. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem would have to wait another six months until Passover, Matthew 21, 9 and 10 tells us what happens at the time of Passover. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? The festival of booths isn't the right time for Jesus to stir up the whole city. He's waiting for the Passover festival, which where he will reveal himself as the Passover lamb, where he not only exposes sin, but will provide the remedy for sin. Jesus uh, isn't being indecisive here. John is, in fact, portraying Jesus' firm resolve to do exactly what the Father gives him to do when the Father directs him to do it. We saw earlier in John 5.19, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Jews ask, Where is he? The answer is that Jesus is waiting for the right moment to head to Jerusalem. At the appointed hour, he will crush sin once and for all, but not yet. His time had not yet come. He's waiting for the right time. Let's talk about application. If you've been putting off getting right with God, now is the right time. Right now is the right time to get right with God. If you, believer, have sin in your life, you need to cast it off through the power of the Holy Spirit. Speaking to believers, Paul says in Romans 13:1 to 14, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you to repent right now. Whatever your besetting sin, hold on to it no longer. Now is the time to repent and turn from sin and turn to Jesus. Where is Jesus? He's tabernacling among us, and he follows God's timing. Third, he is found by those who believe. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? The Jews, meaning the Jewish authorities, are searching for Jesus. They hope the feast will draw Jesus out of Galilee. They want him to come out from the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas and into their hands. Verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. In addition to the Jewish authorities, everyone was looking for Jesus. The hostility of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus meant that the people were afraid to speak openly of of him. They were in fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue, muttering so they couldn't be heard. Some said, he's a good man. A lot of people say that about Jesus today. Oh, I believe he was a great human teacher. In the book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis famously said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. In verse 12, there are two camps. While some said he is a good man, others said no, he is leading the people astray. Both are wrong. A merely good man would not claim to be God, nor would a mere man be able to do the authenticating miracles, the signs that Jesus did. Here we see the example of those who did not find Jesus because they did not believe, said positively, He is found by those who believe. Throughout the book of John, we see the contrast between those who receive him and those who do not, those who believe he is all he says he is, and those who just hang around because of the miracles or the bread. John 1, 11 to 13 says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born into the family of God is quite different than being born into a human family. Blood relationships, heritage, race, even the Jewish race, are irrelevant to spiritual birth. It says, who were born not of blood. Spiritual birth is not a result of personal or sexual desire. Some people think it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're really sincere or passionate. That's all that matters. But it says, who were born not of the will of the flesh. Spiritual birth is not from human effort, even if you try really hard. Spiritual birth is not of the will of man, but of God. We find Jesus when we receive him for all he says he is. We find Jesus when we believe in his name. We find Jesus when we trust him to save us. If you've not yet found Jesus, I encourage you to trust in him today. Believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Find, an, find any elder or any church member and ask them to help you on this journey. John 7, 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The f- people were afraid to talk about Jesus at all. Whether they thought he was a good man or led the people astray, they were afraid to speak openly of him. That, the parallels with our culture today are striking. If you want to clear out a room, just start talking about Jesus. He's a taboo subject to many people. Some people will talk to you about church attendance or speak about God in a general way. Others will use the name of our Lord in vain. But if ever there was a lightning rod, it is the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There's a reason for this. When we speak the name of Jesus and share the gospel, we are entering into intense spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4 tells us, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Yet we must not cease to speak his name We must not be like the people in verse 13, who through the, the fear of man, did not speak openly about Jesus. Acts 4:12 says, "And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Paul said in Romans 1:16, "I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. By way of application, let me give you four practical thoughts on speaking openly about Jesus. First, don't think that you're all on your own. Not only do you have the Holy Spirit within you, but you have the body of Christ around you. If you don't know how to get started, Spend some time with a brother or sister who has the gift of evangelism. We all have responsibility for evangelism, but Ephesians 4, 11, and 12 tells us that there are some who are gifted as evangelists. Their job is to equip the rest of the body for evangelism. There are a number of people, members here at Remedy, that I believe have the gift of evangelism. Seek them out. Go with them. As they evangelize, learn from them. Second, when you speak openly about Jesus, meet people where they're at. Listen to them well. Both listen to them as a person and also listen to the Holy Spirit. Find out where they are in their faith journey. Hear their story. You can't view people as a project or a box to check. You have to truly care about them. Third, as you speak openly about Jesus, pray. Pray for those you will speak with that day. Pray for those you have already spoken with. Pray silently while you're speaking with them. Ask for guidance on what to say and for boldness. Fourth, the gospel isn't just for unbelievers. We all need to hear the gospel. We've talked quite a bit in the past about preaching the gospel to yourself every day. We all need to be reminded of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. If you have children, they need to hear the gospel from you. This isn't a once and done. They should be hearing the gospel from you frequently as you seek to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In closing, The world today asks the question, where is Jesus? The answer is that Jesus dwells, he tabernacles in us, his church. He shed his own blood to create the church. The church is God's primary conduit of his grace and glory to the world. Sometimes we're the ones that may ask, where is Jesus? We want him to do something for us and do it now. We want him to not only answer our prayers, but answer them the way we want, when we want it. But Jesus always follows God's timetable, not ours, because his ways are not our ways. He is wise, he is good, and he loves us. Where is Jesus? He is found by those who believe in him. He is found for, by those who receive him for all he is. He is found by those who trust in him. Let's pray.